All right, take your Bible tonight, if you would, open to the book of Matthew, chapter number 28. Matthew, chapter number 28, and then we will begin reading in verse number 18. <clears throat> Matthew chapter number 28, verse number 18. The Bible says, And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. So the verses that we've read is commonly known as the Great Commission. It is the last command uh, of our Lord given to His people, to His church. And His last command, we would be well, uh, we'd be well served to make it our great concern. Um, in view of an upcoming missions conference, I had this, this message on my heart. Um, and so I knew uh, that, um, that y'all had had many missions conferences in the past, and I knew that the pastor would be dealing with the idea of missions probably some before that. So I called him the other day before I, or as I was, um, thinking about what to preach tonight, and I told him what I had on my heart. I said, but I don't want to get in the way of anybody else or anything that you're going to be covering. And he said, by all means, uh, go ahead and preach uh, preach that message. I had told him some things about it. Um, and what we're going to do tonight is we're going to look in the New Testament, we're going to look at two churches. We're going to look at the church at Jerusalem and the church at Antioch. I titled this message, A Tale of of two churches, a tale of two churches, and we're going to look at how things fall out with these two churches, the church at Jerusalem and the church at Antioch, and how that I believe that it is a direct result of how they received and acted upon the great commission that was given to them by our Lord. The great commission has come uh, to the point within church today that it has become something more like the great omission rather than the great commission. We've come to a place in church life that if we're not careful, as local New Testament churches, uh, we, uh, we become inward focused. What I mean is we look within and we are interested in getting bigger and better and we have no concern as to what goes on in the world round about us across the street or across the globe. And so we're going to look at this, at this tale of two churches, and, and hopefully the Lord will use this to encourage our hearts and to inspire our hearts to do all that we can for missions. Um, I'll tell you the desire of my heart, and I need to hurry along because I've got about 114 points to cover tonight, um, and you will need some sleep at some point tonight. But I, I want to share with you something that's on, that, that's, 
that the Lord has made big in my heart. I, I'm a proponent of the local church. And I desire for it to be the case with my family. I hope that my family always lives in this general area. It's where I was raised. I'm about the fifth generation of my family to live within two or three miles of where I'm standing right now. And I would so love for a biblical New Testament Baptist church to be alive and functioning in, the, in, in this area for my family to attend and to be faithful to unto the day that Jesus comes back. And I believe that one of the things that ensures us the ability to be that church is our faithfulness to the Great Commission, to New Testament missions. And so that's what we are supposed to do as families. We're supposed to come and whatever we have to contribute to our local church, our talents, our abilities, our labors, whatever it is that we can do to come, to come together collectively and make the church, if you'll let me say it this way, make the church work. Make it work. And missions being a priority in our lives cannot be overstated in our efforts to do that. We should teach our children. And, and I'm talking about from the youngest age. That's the only way that my children ever were, were allowed to have an allowance. I never had an allowance. Uh, when I was coming up, it was do it or get a thrashing. That was the options. But my children began to get an allowance when the Lord showed us faith promise missions. And we began giving our children that so that they could learn uh, to give a tithe off of that. And then to go beyond that and to give to missions. Um, and, and as a pastor, when the Lord allowed me to introduce Faith Promise Missions to our church, we don't have time to go into all the stories tonight. I would love to tell you about it individually after service or some other time, but I could take some time and tell you about wonderful things that God done for that church over the years uh, when we begin to really believe and practice the principles and the promises contained within the matter of faith, promise, missions. I could not recommend it higher and high, more, I couldn't recommend it any more highly to anyone, to any church. But let's hurry along. The tale of two churches. We read our Great Commission in Matthew. For time's sake, we're not going to go to Mark nor to Luke, but it's reiterated in those two. Uh, in those two Gospels. Um, and then you go over to the book of Acts and, and keep that Bible open tonight with me. If you would go over to Acts chapter number one, and we're going to go back and forth some in our Bible tonight, turn to several different places as we look at the, these two churches. Acts chapter number one and verse number eight. Here's what the Lord says here. But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. That's a restating, if you will, of the Great Commission. And what he says is, is interesting in this verse. He says uh, that you'll receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, 
and, and listen, he says, and ye shall be witnesses unto me both. That word both we need to pay attention to. You shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. He named off four different specific locations, if you will. And he used that word both. And what that means is, is you're going to have to multitask here. Now, you ladies know about that. You're good at that. Us men, maybe not so much. Uh, but what he literally means there is not uh, less... Let's go and, and, and be witnesses in Jerusalem. And when we conquer Jerusalem with the gospel, then we'll go into Judea. And when we conquer Judea, then Samaria. That's not what it means. It means simultaneously Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost part of the world. Do it all at one time. That's what the implication of that little word both is. So it is a great commission in its magnitude. It is a tall order. It is a tall task. As a matter of fact, it's an unobtainable task without the help of the Lord. Uh, we couldn't do it in and of ourselves. Now, I want to look firstly at God's plan for this church at Jerusalem. Now, the first thing that he tells them to do, and I'll tell you what I'm going to do for time's sake tonight. If I can trust you to write down some scriptures I'm not going to turn to them and read all of those scriptures to you, but I want you to write them down and I want you to go back and look, look at them yourself because you don't need to trust me. I could tell you something wrong. You need, to, you need to prove everything that I say with scripture. The first scripture that I would look at if we were going to take time to turn would be this. Now we're looking at God's plan for this church at Jerusalem. The plan was this. Firstly, they were to wait. And that scripture would be found in Luke's gospel, chapter 24, Luke 24, and it would be found in verse 44 through 49. And that's where he tells them to wait, to wait. He was waiting for that empowerment for the Holy Ghost to come upon them. So he was telling them, firstly, you just hold on. The time is not yet. Don't get ahead of yourself. Now we're past that point. But that's where Jerusalem was, that first Baptist of Jerusalem, if you want to call him that. He told him at one point, now, guys, just wait. When you are empowered, when you're endued with power from on high, and that is what I was alluding to just a moment ago, we can come up with grand and great programs and throw copious amounts of money at it, but if we don't have the leadership of the Holy Ghost of God, it would be all amiss, would it not? And so we have to have the Holy Ghost direction and discretion as to the way that we go about the matter of supporting missions. Uh, and then he says that they are to worship. I'm going to turn there real quick because we're so close in Acts chapter number 2 and verse number 1. Here's what it said. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting, and there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as a fire, and it sat upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues. That says other tongues, not unknown tongues. They began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men, out of every nation under heaven. Now when it was noised abroad, the multitude came together and were confounded because that every man heard them speak in his own language. 
And they were all amazed and marveled, saying one to another, Behold, are not all these which speak Galileans? And how hear we every man in our own tongue wherein we were born? What you're seeing here is they were not only to wait, but they were to worship. They were to worship. Then we see that they were not only to wait and worship, but they were to witness to the world. We've already read that verse to substantiate that in Acts chapter number 1, verse 8, when he told them, Go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, unto the uttermost parts of the world, and do what? And preach the gospel. Preach the gospel. That's what they were supposed to do. Yes, to wait. Yes, to worship but to witness to the world. That's God's plan for this church in Jerusalem. They are to witness to the world. And in this day and age that we live in, we have confused and confounded anything and everything to be missions that is not missions. Um, understand what I say. Please don't misunderstand what I say. Feeding the poor is good and it should be done. Clothing the naked is good, and it should be done. But missions, biblically speaking, and we as Baptists are biblicists, we are biblical people, we believe that the Bible is to define what missions are for us, and missions is this. It is a local New Testament church sending someone somewhere that's someone preaching the gospel to those people there, the Holy Ghost of God converting those people and establishing a local New Testament church there. That is the truest definition of biblical missions. And we must be busy about missions now because we all know how quickly life is getting past us. Life is as a vapor it's here only for a short time and, and then it vanishes away. A preacher who was a, who was a great inspiration to me, as a matter of fact, many of my thoughts tonight are, are not original to me, but were uh, some of his thoughts. But Brother Stennett Blue used to say this. He was a great missions preacher. Brother Blue said, I want to do what I can while I can so that when I cannot, I will not wish that I would have when I could have. Now that's a mouthful, isn't it? But it's truth. I want to do what I can while I can so that when I cannot, I will not wish that I would have when I could have. God wants us as a local New Testament church to do all that we can for missions. Do you know what God's always asked of his people? Just all that they can. Never more, but never less. He wants us to do all that we can to get this great and glorious gospel that he's given to us all around the world. Think about it. Are we not thankful tonight that somebody was a missionary to us? Somebody was a missionary to me. Somebody got me the gospel. Somebody gave me the truth and hallelujah and thank God for that. And, and somebody done that for you. But listen, somewhere on this globe right now is a person who has never heard the name of Jesus. 
They've never heard a verse of Scripture quoted in their language. There are people groups in this world, not just individual persons, but people groups that have never seen a preacher, never heard the gospel, never seen a Bible. I heard it said one time, and I don't know that I disagree with the statement. It was said, nobody deserves to hear the gospel twice until everybody has heard it once. Nobody deserves to hear twice until everybody has heard once. God's plan for this church at Jerusalem was to get the gospel around the world. He said so. And the Great Commission, he said it in Matthew, he said it in Mark, he said it in Luke, and then he reiterated in the early chapter, chapter number one of the book of Acts, that was God's plan for the church at Jerusalem. But then let's see God's problem with his church at Jerusalem. God has a problem with the church at Jerusalem. The first problem that you see, now you've got that Bible opening, you turn with me. God has firstly a miracle problem with the church at Jerusalem. Go to Acts chapter number 3 and verse number 1. Acts chapter number 3 and verse number 1. Acts 3 and 1, here's what the Bible says. Now Peter and John went up together into the temple at, at the hour of prayer, being the ninth hour, and a certain man lame from his mother's womb was carried when they laid, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms of them that entered into the temple, who seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, ask an alms. And Peter fastening his eyes upon him with John, said, Look on us. And he gave heed unto them, expecting to receive something of them. Then Peter said, Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up, and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. And he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered with them into the temple, walking and leaping, and praising God. There's a miracle. Then in chapter number 5, verse number 17, Acts chapter number 5, verse number 17, look there with me quickly. Verse number 17 says, Then the high priest rose up, and all they that were with him, which is the sect of the Sadducees, and were filled with indignation, and laid their hands on the apostles and put them in the common prison. But the angel of the Lord by night opened the prison doors and brought them forth and said, Go. Stand and speak in the temple to the people all the words of this life. There's two grand miracles that we just read of him. And time fails us tonight to expound on those two miracles. But it's only two brief examples. But if you read throughout the book of Acts, what you'll find is this new, this newly started church, this newly founded church in Jerusalem is experiencing miracle after miracle after miracle. You say, what's wrong with that? Nothing, nothing is wrong with that. You are listening to a preacher and looking at a preacher who believes in miracles. I've experienced a miracle in my own life. Twenty Over 20 years ago, God saved me. That's the greatest miracle that God could ever perform. Now, we believe that God can still, if he so chooses, to perform miracles. We believe he can cure people of, of deathly diseases and so on and so forth. We just don't believe in people going around with miracle prayer cloths for sale to bring that in to pass. 
Uh, we believe in divine healing, just not in divine healers. Um, so, but the reason we say that they had a miracle problem is it seems that this become the norm, it become the expected, and um, they were they became inward focused. Look at what's going on down here at First Baptist Jerusalem. We've we've got a monopoly on God. God's just working everything out for us. It seems as if every time a problem arises, somehow God just miraculously fixes the problem. The problem was not in the miracle. The problem was not in the God of the miracle. But listen, we've seen it in our own lives, not even with miraculous things, but just with blessings from God. We can somehow in our flawed human flesh, we can take the blessings of God and somehow let it, let it warp us around to where we focus on the blessing more than the giver of the blessing. They had a miracle problem. Secondly, they had a money problem. Now, most Baptist churches I've ever known very much about had money problem, but a different sort of money problem than that that this church at Jerusalem had. Chapter number 2, verse number 44. We'll read that. Chapter 2 of Acts, verse number 44 and 45. And all that believed were together and had all things common, and sold their possessions and goods, and parted them to all men as every man had need. Then we turn to chapter number 4 and verse number 34. Chapter number 4 and verse number 34, the Bible says this, Neither was there any among them that lacked, for as many as were possessors of land or houses sold them, and brought the prices of the things that were sold, and laid them down at the apostles' feet, and distribution was made unto every man according as he had need. And Joseph, who by the apostles was surnamed Barnabas, which he is being interpreted the son of consolation, a Levite, and of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. If we were to read into the fifth chapter, uh, we would find the story of Ananias and Sapphira, and you know about their giving and them withholding some and and but we're saying we're telling you that God had a problem with this church at Jerusalem he had firstly a miracle problem and then a money problem it it seemed that uh, it seemed that there was money to abound there it seemed that uh, uh, everyone was selling that that they had and and some people will take texts like this and try to prove some type of of try to say that Christianity should be a communal lifestyle and and the Bible doesn't bear that out at all nobody was obligated to do these things they did these things but it was not forced upon them it was not scripturally mandated in any way but it seemed that uh, it seemed that things were for the for the church down at Jerusalem uh, it was beginning to look like way over there in the book of Revelation in the third chapter with the Laodicean church that they were rich and increased with goods and had need of nothing. Can I say to you that for us as God's people, it is sometimes dangerous when we are not needy. We, we so often pray for all of our needs to be met. But is it true of you? I know that it's true of me. Oftentimes when I don't have a need in my life, my prayer life will wane off. I will drift. I am carnal enough that if I'm not careful, my chest will stick out and I will feel like that I have everything under control. And, and, and the life that we have nowadays, we, we have jobs that pay us a, a certain amount for a certain amount of hours worked and, and we have our Roth IRAs and our 401ks and our annuities and our health insurance and dental insurance and vision insurance and not a single one of those things that I just named 
ashamed or bad or wicked or sinful in and of themselves. They're good in and of themselves. But when we begin to lean upon them and trust upon them to the extent that we don't even feel that we need to lean upon God anymore, that the program can meet our needs. It's God that we are to lean upon. And, and it appears that, that the church at Jerusalem had come to that place to where they had such an abundance of all things necessary that they didn't see a need to draw nigh to God. They had a miracle problem. They had a money problem. And thirdly, they had a multiplying problem. Back to chapter number 1 and verse number 15. Chapter 1, verse number 15, it says, And in those days Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples and said, then in parentheses, the number of the names together were about an hundred and twenty. So we start here in chapter 1, verse 15, and in totality, we have a total of 120 people present. That's in chapter 1 and verse 15. We scoot over just one chapter to our right, chapter number 2 and verse number uh, 41, and look at what we read. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day they were added unto them about 3,000 souls. So we started out in chapter 1 with 120. Peter preaches on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 souls are saved, and hallelujah for that. We flip over to chapter number 4, verse number 4, and here's what we, uh, no, I told you wrong there, chapter number 4, and boy, I wish I could read my own writing better right there. I don't know if that's a 4 or a 14. I'm going to have to start letting Shanda write for me. Or get me some glasses, one of the two. But I'll tell you what you find in chapter number four. You find that there were 5,000 men added. It says nothing of women or children, certain that there probably were. But 5,000 were added there at that time. Uh, It was verse number four. How be it many of them which heard the word believed and the number of the men was about 5,000. So you started out with 120. You added 3,000 in chapter number 2. Two chapters later, chapter 4, verse 4, you added 5,000 more. Then we skip over two more chapters to our right to chapter 6 and verse number 2. And look at what we find in that case. Chapter 6, verse number 2. Then the twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto them and said, It is not reason that we should leave the word of God and and serve tables. What we have in this verse, we're not given a number, but we're just told that it is a multitude. Then the twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto them. We're, from that point on, after we leave, to my understanding, when we leave chapter 4, verse 4, and we're told that that 5,000 is added, from that point forward, it's without number. It's just a multitude. And so we say that they had a multiplying problem. They started with a miracle problem. And then they had a money problem, and then they have a multiplying problem. And if you notice, all of these problems that they have are things that we consistently pray for. We pray for miracles on a consistent basis and should. Uh, We prayed prayed for God to cure cancer tonight, and we pray to God that He will, that He does that. Um, We often pray over finances. Um, if, If we'll pray for God to allow us to take on more missionaries, that's a financial concern. That's a financial prayer Uh, brother greg prayed about helping us to witness to people and reach people and and invite people to church and 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 that has to do with multiplying and we should desire that we want that and like i've said with all these other things in and of themselves they are not bad they are good all of those things are good but what had happened 
down at the church at Jerusalem, again, they had taken the gift, they had taken the blessing and become so focused on the gift, so focused on the blessing. It would seem that they forgot the giver of the gift because they forgot the command that he gave them. What did he tell them? He said, go, go, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the world. And all you can find throughout the text that you read concerning the church at Jerusalem is that they stayed in place. They had no concern for Judea, no concern for Samaria, no concern for the uttermost parts of the world. It was if they said we are rich and increased of goods and have need of nothing. Everything is going so well here. We have such grand services on the Lord's day and we have terrific Sunday school classes and the fellowship is beyond compare. So why would we ever want to go outside of our four walls and approach this godless, graceless world? God has a problem with the church at Jerusalem. Thirdly, I want you to see not only God's plan for the church at Jerusalem and God's problem with his church at Jerusalem, but God's persecution upon his church at Jerusalem. And some people would question that verbiage that I just used, God's persecution upon his church at Jerusalem. Surely you wouldn't think that the devil would want to persecute the church. The church never flourishes until persecution comes along. Now God does indeed use the devil to persecute the church. But it's just as it was with Job. It's only at the sovereign's discretion and only as he dictates that it is allowed. So while looking at God's persecution upon this church at Jerusalem, here's what we're going to see. The first thing we see is there is a disturbance over distribution. I'm going to let you write this one down and not turn there. In chapter number 6, verse 1 through 4, what you will find, and we just was reading from that just a moment ago. We read verse number 2 where it talks about the multitude. What has happened is they had widows that were widows indeed that needed the church's aid to be able to live. And so there was a disturbance that raised between the Hebrew widows and the Grecian widows and the Grecian widows believed that maybe that they were being treated unfairly and they weren't being given as much as the Hebrew widows. And so there was a stink that arose over that. And so the apostles appointed them seven men and said, you take care of this. You handle these things here. We'll give ourselves to studying the scriptures and prayer. And uh, so they had this disturbance over distribution. Who would have thought it? All of these people, an innumerable number of people. And who would have thought you're going to have disagreements arise? We don't have time to touch on it, but God help us in our disagreements. Then secondly, we see the death of a dear brother. In chapter 7, you can write this one down as well. Chapter 7, verse 54 through 60, you find the story of Stephen and how that he was preaching to those uh, Jews there and how that when he preached the truth to him, they literally ran upon him, uh, bit on him with their teeth, and they stoned him to death. And as he died the first martyr's death, he stood and looked into heaven and said that he's seen the Lord Jesus standing on the right hand of the Father. And so that was a huge, huge blow to the church at Jerusalem. They are having this disturbance among some of the membership, this 
disagreement, this bickering, this separation. Then you have this death of a dear brother, that being Stephen. And then the third thing I would mention to you concerning God's persecution upon his church at Jerusalem would be the the dread of the disciples. Chapter 8 and verse number 3, we're introduced to the dread of the disciples. This is the verse that I have chosen to introduce us to him with. He's mentioned previously in chapter number 7. But uh, verse number 3 of chapter 8 says this, As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering into every house, and helling men and women, committed them to prison. That's who later is saved and becomes Paul the Apostle. But at this time, unconverted, he is Saul of Tarsus, and he is the dread of the disciples. The very mention of his name struck fear and terror into those church members at Jerusalem, for they had seen how he conducted himself at the stoning of Stephen. He was the ringleader. He was held. Coats were thrown down for him to be able to walk upon. He hated Christians. He had a religious zeal like none other of his day. And he would take men, women, boys, girls, and take their life and think that he did God a favor in so doing. And there was no distance that he would not travel. There was no task that he was not willing to undertake in an effort to exterminate the world of this plague of Christianity. He was the dread of the disciples and God had raised him up right there in the doorstep of First Baptist Jerusalem when everything was going so fine but they were inward focused and I want to say to you and I don't want to get ahead of myself but you mark this down when God reveals his will to us we need to get with the program because God has a way of bringing his will to pass in our lives. And we'll see that as we look further into this church. So God's persecution upon his church at Jerusalem, the disturbance over the distribution, the death of a dear brother, the dread of the disciples, and then lastly, the dispersing of the disciples. Look in chapter 8, verse number 1 with me. Chapter 8, verse number 1. It's speaking of the death of uh, our, our first Christian martyr, Stephen. It says, And Saul was consenting unto his death. And at that time there was a great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered abroad. Now y'all listen to this. Throughout the regions of Judea. And Samaria, except the apostles. Do you see what God is doing? Where did God tell them to go? Jerusalem, which they were already there. And when he spoke further, he said, both in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the world. And they've sat there at home, fat and sassy, Happy with them and theirs being saved. Let the whole rest of the world die and go to hell so far as we care. We're having a large time down here in Jerusalem. And now God has brought about this disturbance over the distribution to the widows. He's caused the death of this dear brother. And now he's brought about the dread of the disciples. And all of that has now led to the dispersing, the casting forth 
of the disciples. These believers, these members down at the church at Jerusalem, they were all, it says, scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. That term scattered abroad means something along the lines of you just took a handful of sand and just cast it and let it land where it would. They're scattered abroad. Now, fourthly and finally, I want to show you God's performance through his church at Jerusalem. Number one, the word of God was scattered. Drop down to verse four, chapter eight. Now, you know what's just happened. We've just covered it in verse number one. They're scattered abroad. Verse four says this, therefore, they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. God had to do all these things that we talked about just to get them to do what he told them to do back yonder in Matthew and Mark and in Luke and in Acts chapter 8 verse 1. And God has done all these things and now he scattered them abroad. And when they scatter abroad into the very places he told them to go, they're preaching the word there. God is accomplishing his will. God is causing them to do what he had commanded them to do. The word was scattered abroad. The second thing that happens when you consider God's performance through his church at Jerusalem, the word was scattered abroad. The wicked were saved. What you find is in three chapters, chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10, you find a convert per chapter. In chapter number 8, you find the Ethiopian eunuch. You remember how Philip, one of those seven that was designated yonder in Jerusalem. Philip goes down yonder in chapter number 8 and preaches in the desert to that Ethiopian eunuch and he is saved. Then in chapter number 9, you have this dread of the disciples, Saul of Tarsus. Um, he is on his way. Uh, to persecute more Christians, to spill more Christian blood. And the Lord Jesus himself speaks to him, calls him by name, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And Saul was born again right there in the way. He's converted now in the ninth chapter. Then in the 10th chapter, <clears throat> Peter is led of God to go to the house of one by the name of Cornelius. And he is saved, born again. Why do I mention this to you? Why are we concerned about only three souls being saved when we've been reading about 3,000 and 5,000? Why do we mention these three? What is the significance of it? I think that it's just God showing us a picture of what he wishes to accomplish through worldwide missions conducted by local New Testament churches. That is this, chapter number, well, let, let me back up. There were eight souls that went on the ark, right? Noah, Miss Noah, Ham, Shem, Japheth, and their wives, eight souls. And then when they came off of that ark, those three boys and, and their three wives, they're the progenitors of everyone that comes thereafter, Correct. Well, what's interesting to notice about this, these three souls saved, one in chapter 8, one in chapter 9, one in chapter 10, the Ethiopian eunuch, he was Ethiopian. 
He was of Ethiopian descent. That would have made him a descendant of Ham. That would have made him a Hamite. All right? Then in chapter 9, you have Saul. He would have been a descendant of Shem. And then in the 10th chapter, you have Cornelius saved. He would have been a descendant of Japheth. So when God's church begins to do God's work in God's way, what you see is God gives us just a quick little snapshot to tell us that I'm going to save people from all races, from all nations, from all tribes of all kind, red and yellow, black and white. They are precious in His sight. God says, I'm interested in people, not just the Jew, not just the rich, not just the Republican or just the Democrat, not just the white nor the black. He's interested in all of them. That's what He's showing us in chapter 8 and 9 and 10 saving one from each one of those three descendants of Noah's sons. Then we see, again, concerning God's performance through this church, we see works were started. In Acts chapter number 11 and verse 19, we'll turn there quickly. Acts chapter 11, verse number 19. Here's what we see. And they which were scattered abroad upon the persecution that arose about Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, preaching the word to none but unto the Jews only. And some of them were men of Cyprus and Cyrene, which when they were come to Antioch, spake unto the Grecians, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the, and the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned unto the Lord. Then tidings of these things came into the ears of the church, which was in Jerusalem. And they sent forth Barnabas, that he should go as far as Antioch, who, when he came and had seen the grace of God, was glad. And that's what we ought to be when we see the grace of God at work. We ought to be glad. And he exhorted them all, that with purpose of heart they would cleave unto the Lord, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Ghost and of faith, and much people was added unto the Lord. Then departed Barnabas to Tarsus for to seek Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him unto Antioch. And it came to pass that a whole year they assembled themselves with the church and taught much people. And the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. We've spoken all of this time concerning just Jerusalem and our remarks as they're related to Antioch, will be few. But we said we were looking at the tale of two churches, or a tale of two churches. We've covered Jerusalem. We have seen how that God gave them this great commission. They became inward focused. They had these problems, miracle problems, and money problems, and multiplying problems, and they become so inward focused, they got completely distracted and disregarded the command that God had given them, which was to go into all the world and preach the gospel to all nations. We are to evangelize. We're to baptize. And we are to stabilize. That's what the Great Commission consists of. Evangelize them. Then baptize them. And then stabilize them. And Jerusalem failed in that capacity. And so God had to bring about this persecution to get anything out of them. But then it seems as if God 
and his sovereign choice seemed to take that hand off of Jerusalem and placed his hand upon Antioch. In these verses that we just read, what we find in Acts chapter 11, verse 19 through 26, is that Jerusalem sent these men down to Antioch. And Saul and Barnabas here have established a church. They stayed there for a year. Verse 25 said, Then departed Barnabas to Tarsus for to seek Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. Now listen. And it came to pass that a whole year they assembled themselves with the church and taught much people. And the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. God's beginning to put his hand on a church there in Antioch. Now I want to show you lastly, and we'll be done, workers were sent out in the 13th chapter. Chapter 13 of Acts, verse 1 through 4. We'll read this, make a few remarks, and we're done. Chapter 13, verse number 1. Now there were in the church that was at Antioch certain prophets and teachers as Barnabas and Simeon that was called Niger and Lucius of Cyrene and Manian, which had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. I like this verse too. We're reading further. But yet God always calls busy people. God never calls lazy people to do anything for Him. God's never called a man that wasn't doing anything to do something. God calls people that's busy doing something to do something else. It says in verse number 2, As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Ghost said, I like that too. What mama said or daddy said, the Holy Ghost said. It says, the Holy Ghost said, separate me Barnabas and Saul for the work whereunto I have called them. And when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands upon them, they sent them away. They sent them away. Now there's a lot that's implied and, and said in this verse and when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. That fasting and praying tells us that they didn't take it lightly, that they recognized the seriousness of taking two men and sending them out to be missionaries. So much to say. You understand that if it wasn't for these missionaries right here being sent out, you and I might be wearing loincloths somewhere and cannibals eating our cousins. You understand that it was these missionaries in this text that we read about who had the vision. The man from Macedonia said, come over here and help us. That's our people from Macedonia. They were headed to Asia. But they were called into Macedonia. And now we're sending missionaries into Asia. It says, and when they had fasted and prayed, they took it serious. They laid their hands on them and they sent them away. That word sent bears the implication and, and this so much needs and should be said about this as far as missions. It means to be sent with provisions. We're going to say it in the simplest of terms. Every Christian is a missionary. Every believer is a missionary. There's two kinds. Sent that would be Brother Noel Manninquill. He is a sent missionary. 
But then there are sending missionaries. That's you and I. We go to work. We work Monday through Friday. We, uh, we come to church on Sunday and we take and, and we give a portion out of our income that God lays upon our heart and we dedicate that by faith to missions, to send missions around the world. Those faithful men like Brother Maninquil and untold numbers just like him, they, they are sent missionaries, but they cannot do what they do if there's not sending missionaries back at home that will, by faith, let God use them. Uh, someone once said, if God can get it through you, He'll get it to you. And God will give you that that you have purposed in your heart to give to missions. That's how God works this thing out. He sends these missionaries out of the church at Antioch. And I didn't mean to lie to you, but I did miss one thing. I'm going to read one more text to you, and, I'm, and I, I promise I'm really done then. I want to show you where these missionaries came back home after making this little trip. Now, you know that Paul made three missionary journeys. But after this journey, he comes back. Chapter number 14, verse 23. I'll read it for you real quick. Chapter 14, verse number 23. And when they had ordained them elders in every church and had prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord on whom they believed. And after they had passed throughout Pisdia, they came to Pamphylia. And when they had preached the word in Pergia, they went down to Italia and thence sailed to Antioch, from whence they had been recommended to the grace of God for the work which they fulfilled. And do you know why they fulfilled it? Because the church at Antioch supported them. Because they sent them. That's how they fulfilled it. Verse 27, and when they were come and had gathered the church together, they rehearsed all that God had done with them and how he had opened the door of faith unto the Gentiles. And there they abode long time with the disciples. Is that not a beautiful picture? God has somehow seemed to have lifted the, 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 the hand off of Jerusalem and placed it on Antioch. They sent these two missionaries. They sent them out. They make their voyages. They establish local New Testament churches, which is what the missions were, missions are. And then they come back to the church that sent them, Antioch, and they rehearse and they tell them all about what deputation, if you, not deputation, but uh, rather coming in on furlough and, and telling the sending church, here's what God's done through us. Here's what God has done for the heathen nation. Here's what God's done for the Gentile. Does it not bless your heart when you hear from your missionaries, you read their letters, or when they come by on furlough and they tell you about the grace of God at work over yonder in India or the Philippines or South Korea or China or wherever. Hallelujah to God for that. I tell you, it thrills my soul to have a part in worldwide missions. I remember a few years ago, you forgive me, I'm a redneck and there's no hope of me ever changing. But here I was on a full moon night in the middle of a bottom in Randolph, Mississippi, riding behind two mules on my wagon, just as happy as I could be enjoying myself. And the phone rings and it's my dear friend over yonder, we're probably on that Facebook Live, and I'm not going to say too much, but he's in a communist country that they would kill him if they caught him. They would take his life. 
and he was rejoicing over the fact that they were able to get gospel material out. They've got Bibles and preaching and 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 song and and singing on little old chips as small. I don't know how small they are, little old bitty things, and they get them out by the thousands, tens of thousands. And he was telling me, preacher, that money that y'all sent to us, we've taken it and we've got it across that border over there. I'll tell you about it after service. But he said, we're getting it out. We're getting it out. And I thought, hallelujah to God. Here I am, a three-quarter illiterate Mississippi redneck in the middle of nowhere behind two cotton patch mules riding a wagon on a Friday night. And nobody knows that I'm smuggling the gospel halfway around the world. Hallelujah. Thank God, son. That's missions. You're not a little insignificant somebody. If you're willing to take a portion of the money that God gives you and blesses you with and you'll pray over it and you'll commit it to your local church's faith promise missions program, I'm telling you, son, you somebody big that's that's involved in something bigger than anybody could ever imagine. This is the biggest. Listen, missions, I'm getting excited like my old friend Brother Ware now. Brother Harvey Ware, he'll get so excited. He says, Brother Ronnie, we're part of the biggest thing that the world has ever seen. And that's exactly right. Thank God for the ability as individuals, as families, as a local church to have a part in this. That God would let us have a part in getting his gospel around this globe. To think that, that, I know y'all are done listening to me, but to think that there's little old youngins over there in the Philippines that hardly have enough food to keep them alive. And because you and I are willing to send something to a good missionary over there, he can tell that child about Jesus, the one that loved him and died for him, and otherwise he may never hear of him. I mean, we ought to take recess and run three laps around this place. Hallelujah to God. He ought to have left every one of us alone and let us go to hell forever. But he saved our soul. That's more than we ever deserved. But then that God would ever consider letting us have a part of getting the message around the world. Hallelujah, son. I got a quitter. I'm going to take off running down this aisle. Thank God for missions. I want to have a part in it, don't you? I want to do everything that I can. I'm not interested in the programs that this world has. I'm not interested in any of that stuff, but I'm interested in doing what I can while I can so that when I cannot, I will not wish that I would have when I could have. Let's all stand to our feet. We'll pray and be dismissed. Brother Chris, would you pray for us, please, sir?